Last week, we began to look at this well-known story of the transfiguration of Jesus. I said it was an incredible story, almost a, a story that you can't believe in. You may think it's made up, but I made the point that here we have three eyewitness testimonies of what happened, and Peter writes about it in one of the letters he writes to one of the churches he was involved in. And we looked last week at the voice that came from heaven, the voice that said, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. And we saw how that voice from heaven showed very clearly that Jesus was not just one of the prophets. He was unique. He was God's son. And today I want to look at a second aspect of that great experience on the mountain. And this second aspect is the glory they saw. And I want to look at the significance of that glory. Look at uh, verse 2. After six days, this is Mark chapter 9, Jesus took Peter, James and John up with them and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. What we have here, I think, is a foretaste of the kingdom of God in its glory. A foretaste of Jesus' messianic reign. Well, why do I say that? Well, look at chapter 9, verse 1, and also at chapter 8, verse 38. Chapter 8, verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And chapter 9, verse 1, and he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Now, those of you who read theology books will know that chapter 9, verse 1, has been the subject of a lot of debate. Some see here Jesus saying that he expected his returning glory to be in the lifetime of his disciples. However, that does not fit in with several other comments from Jesus about there being a long time between his departure and return. I have in mind the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents, which suggest that the bridegroom in the former, the ten virgins, and the master and the talents were away a very long time. And Jesus in the Gospels says on one occasion, no one knows the date of his return, including himself. And what's more, if the disciples had understood Jesus to be saying that he would definitely return within the lifetime of some of them, then I think we would have expected to see an increasing excitement about the second coming as the apostolic age wore on, and as the number of the disciples grew fewer. But in fact, we don't see any of that. We find, indeed, the opposite. 
Of course, if chapter 9, verse 1 does refer to the second coming, then we have to say Jesus got it wrong. He misled his disciples, which is a totally unacceptable interpretation, especially as he starts with the comment, I tell you the truth. A much more satisfactory understanding is to link chapter 9, verse 1, with this transfiguration event, which in every one of the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, immediately, the transfiguration immediately follows the statement of Jesus in 9, verse 1. Just follow with me the logic of what Jesus has been saying, and we try and put um, a logical understanding together. In chapter 8, verse 31... Jesus has been or has begun to talk about the cost of following him. It's not going to be a cakewalk following him. To be a disciple is hard. It involves the abdication of all self-interest, the denial of personal security. To be my disciple, says Jesus, means to be prepared for martyrdom. You must take up your cross and follow me. And this giving up of one's life only becomes a rational thing to do because there is an eternal reward, a reward for those who pay that price. But there's also going to be an embarrassing penalty for those who don't. You can see that very clearly in verses 35 to 38 of Mark chapter 8. And someone listening to those words of Jesus might be saying something like this. Well, words like that are cheap. Anyone can offer pie in the sky when you die. Only a fool throws away their life on the strength of unsubstantiated promises. Well, says Jesus, that may be so. Therefore, I intend to prove that what I have said about the coming kingdom of God isn't just empty talk. I don't expect you to taste death for me with nothing more than verbal assurances to cling to. No, long before that day when you must taste death on my behalf, some of you standing here will have seen with your own eyes the unmistakable evidence of that new age, that heavenly glory of which I am speaking. And that, I suggest to you, is exactly what the transfiguration was. It was not a total fulfillment of what that promise Jesus made, for there's resurrection and Pentecost also to come. But in the short term, in the immediate, that's what the transfiguration was to these three disciples. A foretaste of the coming kingdom of God, a glimpse of Jesus, the Christ, in his heavenly glory. Now, the glory was always there, of course, The kingdom of God was there in Jesus. It had arrived with him. But it was hidden behind the veil of his flesh. 
Here, however, for a few brief moments, that glory breaks through. It's as if the curtain of time is drawn aside and we see for a few brief moments, Jesus as eternity sees him. Jesus as the whole world one day will see him. Clothed with majesty, coming in his father's glory in the company of the heavenly angels. Now, I've no doubt that Peter and the others failed to fully understand all this at the time of the transfiguration. And indeed, their discussion as they came down the mountain shows that they were confused. Look at chapters uh, 9 and verses 9 and 10. Their problem was that according to the usual scheme taught by the rabbis, Messiah didn't rise from the dead. He had no need to. He didn't die, according to the rabbis. Elijah came back first, according to their scheme. Elijah sorted the world out, put it all right. And then the Messiah arrived to take possession of a purged, and renewed world. Elijah restored all things, and then Messiah came to rule and reign over it. Well, if that was the way it was, what possible reason could there be for Jesus dying? Verse 12, if Elijah does come first and restore all things. Why is it then written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected, says Jesus? But as Jesus points out, the rabbis are mistaken on several fundamental points. Not least, they fail to realize that this Elijah figure would have to also pay a price for his call to this fallen world his call to this fallen world to repent. Indeed, he already paid it. In verse 13, Jesus is referring, of course, to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was the prophet like Elijah, who was predicted as the forerunner to the Messiah. But contrary to the rabbi's theories, the powers that be executed John the Baptist. Well, if they did that to the Elijah figure, that God had sent to them, why is it so unthinkable that they should do something similar to the Messiah and kill him also? And indeed, that's what would happen. That's what will happen. The Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected. And I don't think the disciples ever really grasped what Jesus was saying about this suffering, about his suffering. And they don't really fully realise what it all meant until Jesus had risen from the dead. And it's as Peter looks back that we find him writing that letter when he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter, as I said, I did not fully understand the transfiguration when it happened. But now, looking back after the death and the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus back to his father's glory, he starts, he has no trouble in seeing the significance of the transfiguration event. 
2 Peter 1 verse 16 means that Jesus is coming back to establish his kingly rule. So, a question. Is it really so difficult to believe these things? That Jesus is God's son, unique, incomparable, and that he will return in glory? Mark in his gospel is asking us to take seriously what three honest men saw and heard. Mark is asking us to listen to their testimony and in the light of what we know about these men and indeed what happened to them afterwards and what happened to Jesus afterwards to come to a verdict. And that's what I call each one of us to do. To listen to these testimonies of the transfiguration found in Matthew, Mark and Luke that Peter mentions in his own letter and to ask yourselves, would these men lie about this? I don't think so. Because after the death and resurrection of Jesus, <clears throat> these men went around the whole world preaching and we know that apart from one disciple, they did pay the ultimate price to say that Jesus is the Messiah. He does reveal the glory of God. In his resurrection, all those claims about Jesus are vindicated. And we see here a fantastic event which shows us who Jesus really is. The voice and the glory. Amen.